We come across forfeiture funds sometimes. You know, we, we get into these uh, dope investigations sometimes and end up with funds granted to us. But That's, That brings up an interesting topic. How do you decide forfeiture funds? You know, it's usually based on a need. Um, well, I'll take that back. There's some limitations on it. You know, it's um, actually there's not really on the forfeiture stuff. It's, it's We just usually base it on something that would be nice to have that we, we, we can't get in the budget, for, for instance. You know, we try not to use it for things that, we need to depend on, you know, because we need to go ahead and have those purchased. But it's kind of like pennies from heaven, you know, it gets you a, a toy or something that you need is, is the way we typically look at it. June 2001. I've been working all day, eight hours at a local golf course, mowing lawns, breaking sand traps, and hauling dirt. It was exhausting work and underpaid to boot, but since I was a convicted felon, it was the best job I could get. So I busted my ass and tried to keep my eyes open for the next opportunity, hoping to establish a good reference here in case I eventually did get a shot at something more fulfilling, less exhausting. The golf course was 20 miles from home. The drive gave me a chance to decompress after work and to smoke down on the way there every morning. Is there any large amounts of cash in the vehicle? Are there any large sums of money over $5,000 in cash in the vehicle? How much money you got? Are there any large amounts of U.S. currency in I remember every police raid I experienced like it was a traumatic event. Because they all were. Police Police Armed and armored warriors kick in your door and rush in screaming, Hands up! Get down on the ground! You're under arrest! It's the most traumatic experience many of us go through in our lives. This raid was no different. Right now, 20 years later, I can still smell the air. I can still feel the adrenaline flood my veins. I can actually hear the high-pitched blood pressure increase in my ears as I pulled up to my house and turned into the driveway that noticed my front door was ajar. And then I saw a man appear in the doorway wearing a black ski mask and carrying an assault rifle. Shit. He made a frantic signal to somebody inside kind of pointing like, hey y'all, somebody's out here. But by that time, I'd already responded like I think most people would. I threw the car in reverse and got the fuck out of there, reaching for my early version flip phone to make a call to the police. Someone was invading my house, and they were armed to the teeth. As I squealed out of there, a handful of black-cloaked warriors came flooding out of the house. A few even drew down on me with their rifles, like they were going to open fire into traffic to prevent me from escaping. But I was already driving away, and it wasn't until a few blocks later that it hit me, still fumbling for my phone, which was now on the floorboards because of my fast getaway, that those were cops. What the fuck? Why were the fucking police rifling through my house? The blue and red lights appeared in my rear view within half a mile. And despite my rapid right-then-left turn evasion tactics, it didn't take long for them to surround me. I pulled over. Why turn a drug bust into a high-speed chase or even a manslaughter charge with a crash? The arrest went down right there in the middle of my hometown. The last thing I remember is a masked officer walking over to the police car that I'd been stuffed into and pointing at me. That's him. Nobody explained what I was under arrest for. I was guessing it had something to do with drugs, weed, which was all I dealt with at that point, but there was less than two ounces in the house and hardly any cash. 
we were broke. What had prompted a fucking army to cave my house in for less than two ounces of weed? To make matters worse, or rather more confusing, they didn't charge me with any crime. I sat in jail all day and on into the next morning without a lick of paperwork, no charging documents, no access to counsel. It was pretty scary. I mean, what could they possibly be charging me with that required so much time to put together? The next morning, as other people in the cell began to be called out for arraignment, I was sent to intake and promptly booked out, released without any charges. Now, I wasn't going to stay there and argue with them. Like, what gives? Y'all kept me here overnight, so you better charge me with something. But the whole thing was really starting to smell funny. This isn't how the criminal justice system works, is it? When I got home, I started to understand what was really going on. First, the reason for the raid. Someone who knew me and my roommate had been arrested with some pot, and instead of just going to jail, they started to cry a river and blab every name they could come up with, turning us all in as big-time drug dealers. The police had apparently believed his claims, because my house was destroyed, and everything worth anything was gone. Poof! No receipts, no paperwork, no nice notes or thank you cards. Just a ransacked house covered in footprints, dog shit from the yard, and food products that had been dumped on the floor, like they were really enjoying themselves. I never got any of my stuff back. I never even got notification of what all they had taken or why. It wasn't until almost a year later that the paperwork showed up. They were charging me with the bag of weed they'd found in my dresser drawer, less than two ounces. By then, my cash and possessions were long gone auctioned to the highest bidder, and applied to police department budgets to pay for the next big drug raid. Welcome to the land of the free. This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I am your clearly still angry host, Ben Boyce, who's waited 20 years for the government to make right what they stole from me that day. And I could wait another 2,000 years. They aren't interested. The war on drugs and contemporary policing won't work if we stop stealing from citizens. And that's what this episode is about. Civil asset forfeiture. The grimiest, most unconstitutional law you've probably never heard of, but which is used every day by cops across the country to line the pockets of their department's treasury. Are some police agencies more concerned about making money off the drugs than stopping them? Well, at the center of this months-long investigation are laws that let officers pull you over looking for cash. And get this. They don't even have to charge you with a crime to keep your money. Civil asset forfeiture is an archaic law that allows your property to be charged with a crime and confiscated, arrested, even if you are eventually acquitted. And even if you're never actually charged with a crime, like happened to me. These laws net local police departments millions in confiscated cars, electronics, cash, and toys every year. All thanks to the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984. Go Reagan, right? For many years, we have tolerated in America, not just in the illegal and highly dangerous drug traffic, but in many other areas, a syndicate of organized criminals whose power is now reaching unparalleled heights. The personal suffering they cause to our society in human and fiscal terms, the climate of lawlessness that its very existence fosters, has made this network of professional criminals a costly and tragic part of our history. Prior to that instrumental piece of legislation, 
police were much less interested in drug busts. And there's a really good reason why. But before we get to the contemporary world and how these laws work now, let's wind the clock back and look at where they came from. Why do civil asset forfeiture laws exist in the first place? Civil forfeiture laws were instituted during medieval times in a superstitious attempt to punish objects used in the commission of a crime, as if the knife or the gun used to carry out a murder should be held accountable instead of the person who used it. The idea was that objects had something akin to spirits, or an essence, and once an object had, say, fallen on someone's head and killed them, or been used to stab someone to death, it was no longer fit for this world. The object was considered impure, and it was often condemned to destruction. This spooky conjecture that we should punish objects for crimes, it was the foundation of original forfeiture laws. We were chasing ghosts and spirits. Fast forward to the 1600s. In an effort to combat high seas piracy and to ensure payment of import taxes, Britain amended its civil asset forfeiture laws to allow for the seizure of any ship and the cargo on it which failed to display its authentic flag of origin. See, some clever tax evaders had started flying different flags at different ports, effectively making it look like they'd already paid import taxes to whatever country they were unloading at. Then, once they were out to sea, they would simply switch to a new flag, thereby avoiding the next tax depot. England wasn't having it, so they passed a law that basically said that if you do that, if you change your flag from one that belongs on your mast to one that doesn't, we'll just take your stuff. You forfeit it. This is where modern forfeiture laws came from. The flag policy provided two tools for the English government. Number one, it allowed the state to charge inanimate objects, like personal property, with crimes, and to effectively lock that stuff up, a trick that itself requires some screwball thinking to even understand. And number two, by charging objects, not people, the pesky protections of the law, which only apply to people, not stuff, they were avoided. If you and your ship are from France, you have protections and rights extended to you by your government, but your ship does not. A good analogy from our point of reference is the U.S. Constitution. Today, the owner of property in the USA is afforded the 14th Amendment's rights of due process, equal protection under the law. Citizens are guaranteed free speech, representation, freedom, all guaranteed in the Bill of Rights. But their property is given none of these rights, and that distinction is why civil forfeiture laws took an odd turn just over half a century ago. And this is where it gets interesting, in a rather un-American sort of way. In 1970, at the very beginning of what scholars now regard as the birth of the contemporary prison-industrial complex, the Nixon administration spearheaded the amending of civil asset forfeiture laws to allow the property of suspected drug dealers to be confiscated and sold at auction, even if the alleged dealer was never even charged with a crime. But here's the kicker. The original law required that all of the funds be deposited into the federal treasury's general account. If you confiscated 10 grand in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you had to send that money to the federal government. It was a system built to emphasize accountability, which is a pretty good idea in the United States. And that's how it worked for a decade and a half. And during that time, between 1970 and 1984, 
The size of our prison industrial complex remained relatively stable. When police had no personal incentives to lock up drug users, they didn't go out of their way to find and even to create drug users. But it didn't take much effort to redirect those monies to local districts with the passage of the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984. Reagan's love child of capitalism and conservatism. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. Even though drug arrest had remained relatively consistent between 1970 and 1984, when the money seized was always sent to a large general fund, drug arrests increased by more than 72% between 1984 and 1989 within five years of this new law taking effect. And no shit, right? I mean, once police officers know that arresting someone for dope means a possible raise and a boost in their department's budget, once they realize that any money they take stays right here at home, well, it shouldn't surprise us that they promptly get to work taking care of themselves. This year, Louisville Metro Police says they've had 60 criminal homicides. Only 19 have been closed. Take a look at this. According to the Buffalo Police Department, 17 out of 20 homicides this year involved guns. And according to this website, only two of those cases have been solved. Right now in Seven the United States, less than 70% of homicides are solved. And less than 10% of reported sexual assault cases less than 1% of all sexual assault cases, by some estimates, since so many remain unreported. We should be deeply embarrassed about those sad statistics. But in the land of the free, we ignore those failures in favor of drug busts that net departments cash. It's too bad that all those drug warriors and detectives are so busy warring against drugs and drug users. They might otherwise have more time to devote to solving sex crimes or homicides. So the new law allowed local police departments to keep anything confiscated within their jurisdiction. They no longer had to send it to a general fund and then request monies later on. From that point forward, our path as a country was set. We headed unflinchingly into an updated war against drugs and those that use them, and we built a massive system of local warriors to complement our exploding federal system. We incentivized cops to hit the streets and find drug users and dealers, bribing them with cushy budgets and the always tempting offer of free stuff. And true to U.S. form, we made sure it was all invisible, that anyone looking from the outside would have a hard time spotting the incentivization to prioritize drug arrests over violent crimes. As I've said repeatedly on this show, these stateside warriors are not going to give up their jobs as righteous superheroes not without a fight. They are, after all, the good guys. At least, that's what they've been allowed to believe. In their minds, the argument goes something like this. Why should we be forced to resign and work a minimum wage 9 to 5 when we can ramp up the war on drugs and pay our salaries with the profits collected from drug dealers? As long as they're allowed to keep thinking that drug users are bad people, as our recent Attorney General Jefferson Sessions reminded them, then they can keep stealing our property without losing sleep. When Nancy Reagan started the Just Say No program, lives were saved, young people's futures were saved. And if we go back into this path, we're going to regret it. I can't tell you how concerning it is for me emotionally and personally 
lives will be impacted, families will be broken up, children will be damaged, and people may be psychologically impacted the rest of their lives uh, with marijuana. And if they go on to more serious drugs, which tends to happen, you can deny it if you want to, but it tends to happen, uh, there'll be even greater causes. This drug is dangerous. You cannot play with it. It's not funny. It's not something to laugh about. Send that message with clarity that good people don't smoke marijuana. Then they can keep stealing our property without losing sleep. Kicking indoors and taking anything of value has been the norm in our country for more than 35 years now. And once you grease the wheels with that level of free shit, with that level of ingrained corruption, well, it's hard to wean an angry baby. Think about this. Some of today's officers are children of the original group of profiteers who started this racket back in 1984. It isn't just patriotic to be a cop nowadays. It is, for many, a legacy, an identity, a family tradition. As Tupac Shakur said, This country was built on gangs. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this country still is run on gangs. Republicans, Democrats, the police department, the FBI, the CIA, those are gangs. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? The correctional officers. Mm -hmm. I had a correctional officer tell me straight up, we the biggest gang in New York State. When officers arrest a murderer or a rapist or an assaulter, they don't get to take his property and money along with his freedom. That might be why so many murders and robberies never result in an arrest in the United States. We've not incentivized these crimes in the same way that we've incentivized the waging of war against our own citizens. Officers who understand that their funding relies on drug busts naturally become preoccupied with making drug busts. And perhaps not so oddly, now that we're living through the age of legalization, slowly but surely watching all sorts of criminalized substances make their way to the list of decriminalized substances, weed, shrooms, MDMA, ketamine, kratom, the list gets longer every year, we can't expect these warriors to lay down their firearms and suddenly see the light. Like most of us, they'll be quick to protect their jobs. Vincent Sinclair once said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his livelihood depends very much on him not understanding it. And unlike most of us, police officers have access to the inner workings of power. They carry a shield of cultural respectability. We're creating quite a time bomb. We built a system that requires massive amounts of drug arrests, and then we began legalizing drugs, forcing the officers to find new and clever ways to make arrests or risk losing their jobs. And it's worse than that, because unlike normal recessions, where those who are fired tend to be the newest and the least experienced employees, those who will suffer most as the war on drugs winds down are not the rookies or the desk clerks. These layoffs will start at the top, with narcotics units composed of career cops who have given their life to the cause. They followed the rules, they avoided reprimand, they received awards and promotions, and when it came time to create or expand their department's drug enforcement division, they were called upon to fill a role that they were assured came with the perks of cultural clout. Respect, notoriety, special training, a massive pension. A system this well-designed and this large won't simply shut itself down. We've long passed the tipping point of self-sustainment in the war on drugs, and we now have a system which requires not only permanent upkeep, but also permanent expansion. Without the war on drugs, there simply won't be enough crime to rationalize the funding of outdated police departments. 
The watershed will spread throughout the law enforcement community as deputies, transport officers, and bailiffs also experience a round of massive layoffs. Around 20% of all incarcerated people in state prisons and nearly half of those in federal joints are locked up for drugs. Another large group is in jail for property crimes and strong-armed robberies, forgery and shoplifting, identity theft, petty larceny, and other crimes of desperation. Once drugs are legalized, the prisons and the jails will start to empty out because drug users will not be criminals anymore. The wave will move quickly, rippling through food service workers, clothing manufacturers, law enforcement training and equipment providers, transport vehicles and medical personnel, bail bond services, commissary workers. A whole lot of people are going to be left jobless when the incarcerated people who employ them are suddenly freed. The laid-off workforce is going to hit the job market at the same time as the prisoners who were just released. And if we don't get ahead of this tidal wave, it's going to devastate our economy. Criminal forfeiture, where a suspect is convicted and then their property is taken, that's only used in around 13% of all forfeitures in the United States. The other 87% are civil forfeitures. We have to change this norm of robbing from our communities if we ever want to establish trust in law enforcement. If every time I have cash in my pocket, I have to worry about the police stealing it, then they aren't here to serve and protect. At least not me. It seems like no matter where you look, the war on drugs is rotten, misleading, and corrosive to the community. It's blamed for the deaths of nearly 100,000 people every year. It results in millions of arrests every year. It soaks up $100 billion worth of untaxed cash, funding a massive underworld market in a violent, abusive police state that uses it to defend robbing the people they're supposed to protect. And now that cops and, presumably, other live police shows are coming back, it's worth pointing out that, just like numerous other bad policing techniques, we've been watching this sort of thing happen right in front of our eyes for decades. And the more we've seen it, the more normal it's become. We sort of just take it for granted because, I mean, if it's on TV every night, they can't be that unusual, right? If the sergeant shows up after the bust and congratulates his officer for a good arrest, I, the viewer, see what I believe is a good lawful arrest. And in seeing it over and over, eventually I'll expect the same thing to happen to me or to someone else. This is a clip from Live PD, which was the number one show in the country until it was canceled in 2020 amidst protests about police misconduct. This clip is from February 21st, 2020, and it was filmed in Richland County, South Carolina. I'll let the officer explain what initiated this traffic stop. So we were driving by, and someone was just sitting in this vehicle parked on the side of the road and looking at it, the tag's not okay. So we're going to make contact with them. Okay, so she's sitting in a car in front of her house to smoke a cigarette, which apparently now means you can be pulled up on by half a dozen cops and a camera crew, put on live TV nationwide without giving your permission. In the kicker, they can act like you are the weird one when you don't feel comfortable. So you live here? How come you got and that's that exactly what happens here. Okay. This woman, she looks like she's no more than 20 years old. She's shy, confused, and honestly, she looks terrified. Like, what's going on? Why is there a spotlight, a video camera, a ton of cops all over me when I'm just smoking a cigarette? Talk to me about this tag on your car and what's up with your car? 
I almost wonder if she thinks this is some sort of joke, like a surprise from her friends, or possibly even an elaborate robbery, which it kind of is. We're getting to that point real quick. You keep trying to walk away from me. You got ID on you? No, I don't. You don't? I'm just smoking a cigarette, y'all. She seems to be completely taken off guard and unsure of what to do, so she starts walking towards the house. And as you might guess, they grab her, put the camera back in her face, start pelting her with dumb questions, and then start searching her car. She just sitting out here. Well, I saw her when I drove by. It looked like she was sitting there with a cigarette. And then it gets interesting because they find an envelope full of cash. Hey, 69er. 69er. That was a lot. Yeah. You see on her cash? Yeah. 69 means put cuffs on her. And if you're thinking, what the fuck? Why do they have to cuff her just because she had some cash on her? You're not alone. This is straight up bullshit. But as I watched it unfold live, I couldn't help but feel like it wasn't a big deal at all. I mean, it just looked like business as usual. The cops weren't worried about getting in trouble. The officers searching her car seemed straight up thrilled when they found the cash. And they really seemed to have every intention of keeping it, of stealing it from her under the guise of civil forfeiture if she can't prove right then, on the spot, where she got it. Hey, Ferg, ask her how much cash she has. Uh, a lot? What's a lot? Like a couple hundred? A <laughs> couple thousand? Give me a good number. It better be close to what you got in here. That's all I'm saying. A lot. What does that mean? There's got to be a number. If you can't give me a good answer, I'm going to have to seize that money. Oh, did I mention this is a black woman? I'm sure that didn't have anything to do with this, right? Wink, wink. So the car reeks of marijuana, and she's got a ton of cash in here, and she's trying to get away from the car as quick as possible. So we're going to doing a good search on this car. Rhetoric is a fancy way to say that words do more than they appear to do, that they're loaded with meaning and memories. And this is a great example of how much work words really can do. After finding this envelope full of cash and celebrating their score, they spend 15 minutes verifying the woman's identity from her friends and her neighbors. Luckily, she was in front of a house where people knew her. She also had to verify where her money came from. And after all that, after she totally lucks out that the neighbors back up her story, after the police verify that she was indeed given this money legally in a settlement, after they decide that they can't really steal it from her, at least not on camera, they act like the good guys when they give it back. They tell us, the viewer, that what we're seeing is normal, acceptable, heroic even. They explain that if she was a drug dealer, they would have taken her money without a second thought. But since they couldn't prove it, barely, she's getting off easy tonight. It's infuriating, but it happens every day in the United States. And imagine how it would have gone down if the cameras weren't there or if she hadn't been able to verify the money's origin. The cops would have snatched it up and called it a day. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But don't carry around cash unless you want the police to steal it. Civil forfeiture is a way for law enforcement to take your property in cash without any real cause. And until that changes, the idea of oppressed communities trusting the police, it's fucking laughable. Think about what you would do if you were robbed by the police. If you have the wealth and the friends list, well, you might throw a fit, post all sorts of social media shit-talking, maybe even call the press, sue them. You would use every bit of power you could muster to make the situation right, to get your money back. 
And that is why most of these seizures are in low-income communities from poor people who can't fight back. People like me 20 years ago, or like the woman Live PD put on blast and tried to rob on live TV. We have to update these laws. Because if we don't, we will never see trust built in communities, because there's nowhere to build it. You can't trust a thief who is proud of stealing from you over and over. A thief who's rationalized their theft is moral. If you're carrying cash, keep a receipt, take photos of your pay stubs, and keep them on your phone. And don't speed. It's bananas that we even have to resort to talking about this shit in a country that pretends to be built on liberty, justice, and freedom. But until we fix these corrupt laws, you've got to watch your back. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm Ben Boyce. has come to make these gains permanent. A few months ago, Attorney General William French Smith and his staff, in collaboration with the Treasury Department, put together final plans for a national strategy to expose, prosecute, and ultimately cripple organized crime in America. And I want to announce this program today. It is one that outlines a national strategy that I believe will bring us very close to removing a stain from American history that has lasted nearly a hundred years.